with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. As we continue in our journey through Ephesians, uh, we come now to the end of chapter 4. We've seen in chapters 1 through 3 how the amazing wealth of the grace of God in Christ has not only changed our lives in an external way, but has changed us internally. Like God has not just done something to us, but has made us something different. He's given us a new identity if we have trusted in Jesus, just as we have been singing this morning, as we read in Ezekiel chapter 36, that those who trust in Jesus, the heart of stone is removed and the heart of flesh is put in. So we've been seeing in Ephesians 1 through 3, the new identity that God's people have as a result of the grace of God in Christ. And now in chapters 4 through 6, we're seeing how that identity is lived out. What a life lived in the grace of God looks like. A life changed by the grace of God looks like. And so as we get into our text for this morning, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 17 and we're going to read through the second verse of chapter 5. So follow along with me as I read. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Has anyone ever accused you of being a hypocrite? Many people, many Christians are accused of being a hypocrite when they sin. Maybe you've been accused by someone else. Or or maybe in your own heart, you have felt like a hypocrite. Maybe you did something in front of your kids that you had already told them they're, they're not supposed to do, and you feel like, oh, I'm a hypocrite. I don't know if you've been accused of being a hypocrite by someone else who maybe saw an inconsistency in your life, or if you've felt like, 
a hypocrite, but I think when we accuse ourselves or when someone accuses us of that, what, what, what they're getting at is when, when we sin, that sin that you just committed, that, that mistake you just made, that shows that this whole Christian thing is just a facade. And really, deep down inside, you're just like the rest of us, right? Isn't that kind of the sense of hypocrisy? Like, oh, you're all high and mighty, but really, yeah, you're just, you're just the same as all of us. Well, I would want to say from the authority of Scripture, things that we've seen so far, that yes, there is an inconsistency between things that we would say about ourselves and the sin, but, but it's a little bit different. That for a Christian, for someone who had a heart of stone, but God took that out and replaced it with a heart of flesh, and for someone who was, as Ephesians 2 said, dead in their trespasses and sins, but then made alive together with God, that, that hypocrisy is actually is actually this, that your sin is saying something about you that is not true, that in reality, on the inside, you have been given a new heart. In reality, deep down underneath, you are righteous, you are pure, you have been cleaned by God, you've been given a new heart and new life, and so the sin is not revealing this dark reality inside, no, the sin is lying about who you truly are on the inside. It's not revealing who you are. It's denying what God has done in Christ. It's denying that you have been made a new creation. And what we see so often in Scripture is that when Paul or one of the other apostles or whoever would take up writing to believers, when he instructs believers to do something, he's not saying you're not good so therefore just make yourself good he's saying in light of the fact that god has made you new be who you are he's not saying you're bad so work harder try more make yourself better he's, no 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 god took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh you were dead in your trespasses and sins and god made you alive to do the works that he had prepared beforehand so be who you are in christ over and over and over, what we see is not these impossible tasks that our hearts couldn't possibly ever achieve, but no, he's calling us to be who God in Christ has made us already. And so that's going to be the overarching theme as we look today and, and even next week as we continue in some of these instructions that Paul would give, that we would be who we are in Christ, because too often we live lives that look like we have never been changed. Too often in our actions, we communicate, oh yeah, Jesus hasn't made a change in my heart, when he has. And so what Paul would call us to is to live changed, to live as if Jesus really has made the 180 degree turn in our hearts that he has, to be who we are in Christ. As we look at this in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, we'll see this at, at, at three different uh, points. Be who you are. So first of all, we'll see you need to stop living unchanged. Stop living as if you're unchanged. And then to live changed. That's what we'll see. That's where we'll spend most of our time this morning. And then finally, look to the one who changed you. But Paul's first point here is to stop living unchanged. Look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. It's interesting to me that he refers to the Gentiles in this way because back in chapter 2, Paul said to his readers, you Gentiles. He referred to them as Gentiles. But now he's not talking about them. He's, he's saying that Gentiles are these people over here, these unbelievers over here. It's as if even with his vocabulary, Paul is saying to his readers, there is an identity shift that has happened. There has been a change in identity that who you once were is not who you are anymore. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek or Jew nor Gentile in this case. That, that's not who you are anymore. These unbelieving Gentiles, that's who you were, that's your background, but that's not who you are anymore. So even with this language, he's 
talking in a shift of identity. So he says to them, that's not who you are anymore, so stop walking like they do. Stop walking like you used to walk. Well, how is it that they walk? In the end of verse 17, he says, they walk in the futility of their minds. Futility, uh, pointlessness, aimlessness, emptiness. In their minds, they, they perceive a, a lack of a purpose to the world, to life, an aimlessness, a kind of, eh, there's not, it's not really going anywhere, so who cares? And then in verse 18, they're, they're darkened in their understanding. They're, they're spiritually blind, we could say. They, they don't see. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. This ignorance that's in them. That literally, they don't know. They don't know God. And because they don't know God, they're separated from the life of God. They don't experience God's life. They don't know God. They're spiritually blind. They don't see a purpose. They, and all of this at the end of verse 18 is due to their hardness of heart. Underneath this perception of the world that is futile and aimless, underneath this ignorance of God and spiritual blindness is ultimately a heart that is hard toward God, a heart of stone, as we read in Ezekiel. At the core of who they are is a hardness toward God, or at the beginning of verse 19, a callousness toward God. The person who doesn't know God, the person who is far from God, is, is insensitive to the things of God, insensitive to conviction of sin, insensitive to what is right and wrong and the purpose of the universe and all of that is happening on the inside. Hardness of heart, a callousness, uh, not knowing God, not having the life of God, a spiritual blindness, a sense of aimlessness and purposelessness. And that inside condition of the heart then comes out in certain actions. In verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, or we could say to doing whatever feels good. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. After all, if I don't know God, if I don't sense a, a purpose or nothing really matters, it, why not do whatever I feel like? What's the point to not do that? Or as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, those who don't know the Lord carry out the desires of the body and the mind. This is all of us apart from Christ. We just did whatever we felt like, because why not? It's really important that we see here that these actions, the sensuality, uh, doing whatever feels right, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, all of those exterior actions are not unbelievers' core problems. They're symptoms of a heart that doesn't know God. And just as a sidebar, we, we need to remember when, when, we're, when we're thinking about people that we know and love who don't know the Lord and maybe they live a life that we wouldn't want them to live, we need to remember and keep in mind that our goal is not to change their actions. Our goal is not to change their behavior. That they're not actually going to be better off for us doing that. What we need to do is point them to the one who can change their heart. Point them to the one who can give them a heart transplant, like we saw in Ezekiel. So in all of this, Paul says that those who don't know God have this spiritual darkness, a heart that's insensitive to the things of God, hard toward God, doesn't know God, doesn't love God, doesn't live for God, therefore. All these actions come out that uh, are the natural result of a heart that doesn't know God, doesn't love God. And so what Paul then is saying in all of this is, okay, they live that way because of what's happening on the inside of their hearts. But that's not what's happening on the inside of your heart if you're in Christ, so don't live like that way. Don't live that way. If, 
if you are living in sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity, when you have undergone this new heart that God has given you, you're living a lie. You're not being who God in Christ made you to be. He says in verse 20, but this is not the way you learned Christ. Don't walk this way because you know Jesus. You've come to Jesus. You've been saved by Jesus. Don't live like he didn't change you. Don't live like he hasn't given you a new heart. We have no excuse to walk with futility of our minds because according to chapter 1, verse 9, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. He's opened up our eyes. We have no reason to act like we walk in spiritual darkness when we have been given access to the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, Paul said in chapter 1. We don't live like those who are alienated from the life of God, because according to Paul in chapter 2, we were aliens, but God brought us near. We're not far from God, so we shouldn't live like we're far from God. We're not hardened anymore in our heart. No, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive, so stop living like you're still dead, Paul would say. That is what Paul is getting at here, that to walk like the Gentiles walk makes no sense for someone who doesn't have a heart like the Gentiles, a heart like an unbeliever. If Jesus has so changed your heart, stop living unchanged. So before we move on, because the rest of of this passage, we're going to be looking at how then we live changed, how we put off that which was our old life and put on that which is our new life. But before we move on, You know, we've been talking here about the person who is, who has futility in their minds, who has a sense of purposelessness, aimlessness to the world, who's spiritually in darkness, who doesn't know God, doesn't experience the life of God, who's callous, insensitive to God, who does whatever feels right, or does whatever is right in their own eyes, does whatever feels good. Before we move on, it, is, that, is that you? Because what Paul's getting at here is that those, that's, those who are not that way should live like they're changed. But I would want to know and not move on from this before asking the question, it, is this you? Is this your condition? Do you feel a sense of, of purpose, purposelessness and aimlessness? Do you feel like you don't really know God? Do you feel like you do whatever feels good because... Why else would you do anything else? Do you, do you feel a, a sense of insensitivity? If that's you, I want you to know I, I'm not here to change your behavior or to tell you how to uh, stop doing what you're doing and start doing something else. What I want you to know is you need a heart transplant. You need a new heart. Because according to Scripture, your sin has separated you from God. The creator of the universe created you for a relationship with him. Created you to know the joy of living for him and honoring him and the joy of bringing God glory. But according to scripture, we have all sinned against this God. And for our sin, we deserve God's wrath, his punishment forever. We all deserve that. And our only hope is not found in ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to earn this God's favor. There's nothing that we can do to, to improve our condition. No, the only thing we can do is trust in the Savior that our God has provided. God sent his son, Jesus, to be our substitute, to die our death in our place, to take the punishment that we deserve so that if we would trust in him alone, we can be forgiven of all of our sins. If we would trust in him, the one who died and who was resurrected, we can have new life. We can know the life of God. We can come to know this God. We can have a relationship with him. He will change your heart if you trust in him. So I would invite you 
as we continue talking about what a changed life looks like, if you're here and your life has not been changed by Jesus, if you're no different than you've ever been, if you don't feel like you really get this whole thing, I would encourage you just to consider the free offer of the gospel that God makes to each and every one of us, that you can be forgiven if you would just trust in Jesus. So first, Paul would have us hear this command, stop living unchanged. But then he tells us how to live changed, to live a life that looks like it has been changed by Jesus. And a life that is changed is a life that's continually putting off and putting on, putting off old, putting on the new. As Christians, we live between the already and the not yet. Already, we have been declared righteous by God if we have trusted in Jesus. That's called justification. When someone places their faith in Jesus on the books of heaven, God declares that person is righteous. Not because of anything that they did, but because they've trusted in Jesus' righteousness. Already we have been declared righteous, but not yet are we practically righteous. We still sin. We still wrestle with our old self. And so we live between this moment of being declared righteous, where we're already called righteous on the books of heaven, called justification. We're waiting for that day when we're actually righteous in our actions and everything we are the day called glorification. And in between is the process of sanctification, the gradual process where Jesus makes us more and more like himself. The gradual process where God helps us become in reality what we already are on the books of heaven. He helps us grow into this new life that we have been given. He helps us grow into our new life identity. That is where we live here at this time between the moment that we're saved and the moment that we are in heaven forever with God. We're between the already and the not yet. And so that's why so often in the Christian life we feel like a walking contradiction. <laughs> we feel like Jekyll and Hyde because we're wrestling with this old self. They're like, I, I thought I wasn't that way anymore. But then we have this new self that God's given us and these new desires. And, and we, we wrestle with, with this already, we've been changed, but not yet have we gotten rid of our old self. And, and we wrestle with this. And now Paul would show us, he would give us these instructions for how we ought to live as those who are caught between the already and the not yet. And it looks like putting off the old and putting on the new. In verse 22, he says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. We are to put off our old self. In fact, multiple times a day, we are given the option to put off our old self, this old self that belongs to our former manner of life, Paul says, our former manner of life, that the way that we used to live, the way that we were before Jesus saved us, the way that we were before Jesus changed us. But that's not who you are anymore, so put that off. Those old clothes don't fit you anymore. Take them off. That's not who you are anymore. That is your former manner of life. And notice that that old self that we are so often tempted to put back on is corrupt, Paul says, through deceitful desires. Do you know that your desires can deceive you? I bet you do. I, I, know, I know I've experienced that. My sinful desires feed me lies that make me think that putting on the old self is actually the best thing. That make me think that living like I used to live before Christ is actually the way that is my best life. And, and with this, though, if, if we're supposed to put off the old self, but it's corrupt with these deceitful desires that are 
deceiving us and confusing us and making us think that this is what we ought to do, then what's our hope for knowing how we ought to put this off? Well, he tells us in the next verse that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. This is key. If we are to discern what is our old self and what is our new self, we must be renewed in our minds. We must have our minds renewed through Scripture so that more and more we can discern what is belonging to our old life, what is belonging to our new life. Our hope of overcoming these deceitful desires is to have our minds renewed by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God. And with our renewed minds, not only do we see what our old self is that we might put it off, but then in verse 24, we can also see what it is that belongs to our new life so that we would put on the new self. It's not enough just to put off the old self. If you just put off the old, then you still don't have anything on. And you're going to grab something to put on. And if you don't replace the old, you're just going to put the old back on. You might muster up enough to to put it off, to say no to that and take that off. But if you don't replace it, the temptation is always going to be to go back to that. So Paul would have us replace the old, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Created after the likeness of God. You know, we all as humans have been made in the image of God. And because of that, because God has made us in his image, made like him, we have intrinsic worth and dignity. It's something that is true for all humans at all times, at every stage of life. But to be in the image of God means that God intended for us to look like him, intended for us to act like him, intended for us to reflect him. And so while there's nothing we can do to lose the dignity and worth that comes from the image of God, because of sin, we tarnish the image of God that God placed in us. Because God created us to reflect not only his dignity and worth, but also his character, his righteousness, his holiness. But because of sin, we have lost that. We've tarnished the image of God that God placed on us, and we don't reflect the truth of who God is in his righteousness and holiness. But in Christ, God is restoring the image of God in humans. In Christ, he gives us a new self that's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness so that we can once and for all truly reflect who God is. So once and for all, we really can show the world what God's righteousness is like and holiness is like. We can be the human beings that God intended for us to be from the beginning. That's what God has given us in Christ by making us new creations. We can fully display the image of God. That's what we get to do as we put on the new self, as we replace the old with the new. So what does this look like practically? Well, fortunately, we don't have to just sit here and speculate what that looks like. The remaining verses tell us, they give us practical examples of what it looks like for the Christian to reflect the change that God has made in his or her heart. They give us practical examples of what it looks like to put off the old self that's corrupt with its deceitful desires and to then put on the new self. So let's look at these examples, these practical examples that Paul would give us of what this ought to look like in our lives to put off the old and put on the new. The first example he gives uh, is right there in verse 25. Therefore, having put away, put off, falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So the first practical example that Paul would give us of putting off the old person and putting on the new is put off falsehood and put on speaking the truth. 
That falsehood belongs to your former manner of life. That's not who you are anymore. So put on speaking truth. Of course, as we saw, our old self comes with deceitful desires. And so I would, I would ask you, when it comes to the temptation to speak falsehood, what deceit is that desire evoking in your heart? What, what lie is the desire for falsehood feeding you? What is it that, that deceives you into thinking that's what you ought to do when in reality that's not who you are anymore? One example of the kind of lie that we believe that leads us to put on the old of falsehood is, oh, well, the, the truth would hurt his feelings. So just kind of tell a little white lie for, for his sake. We believe the lie that the most loving thing we can do is not tell the truth. That's part of the deceitful desire of falsehood that belongs to the old man. So what we need when that is what our desire is trying to deceive us into believing is to be renewed in our minds, to be renewed with the truth of Scripture, which in this case would teach us that love actually rejoices with the truth, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. And as our minds are renewed by the truth of Scripture that, oh, actually, love speaks the truth, or as Paul says in uh, the earlier part of Ephesians 4, that we speak the truth in love. As our minds are renewed with that truth, we will recognize, oh, that desire for falsehood belongs to my old man. I'm going to put that off, and I'm going to put on who I really am in Christ, who Jesus has made me to be, to be the person who would speak the truth in love. Maybe the desire for falsehood is feeding you the lie. Well, I I can't tell the truth about who I really am because people will only accept me if they think this about me, if they think that my life is this way. And so I'm going to put on this, this false facade so that people will accept me. So we start to believe this lie that we, in order to be loved, we have to put up this front. We have to create this false reality. But that is a lie that our old self would tell us. We need to have our minds renewed by the truth that in Christ, as we see right here in this verse, we're members one of another. That in reality, we are not the ones who are to make ourselves acceptable to one another, that God in Christ has brought us together, as we see in chapter 2, that he tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And in James, James instructs Christians to confess their sins to one another so that you may be healed. We are to be honest and transparent with one another about our brokenness, about the reality of our need, the reality of our weakness, and, and that's the kind of love that we are to, uh, to, to grow together in, because we're members one of another. So put off falsehood. Put on speaking the truth. The next example he gives is in verse, uh, verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Well, this is admittedly a tricky one. Is, is he saying put on anger or is he saying put off anger? It's kind of hard to tell. He says be angry, but then he says do not sin. And Then in verse 31, which we read a moment ago, he'll say let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you. So is there a contradiction here? What's going on? What, what's he getting at? Well, flip over to Psalm 4. I think it will help us see the point of this if we recognize that Paul is actually quoting here from Psalm 4. David writes in verse 4, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. As we look at this full verse, what the picture that we get here 
is anger under control. He says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts. Rather than being out of control and lashing out at someone else, keep it in your own heart. Ponder in your own heart. Instead of making a public spectacle out of it, keep, keep it on in your in your room. Keep that private and be silent. It's anger under control. And as we turn back to Ephesians chapter 4, it's not only anger under control, but also in verse, at the end of verse 26, he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So it's anger that, that doesn't just lash out. It's, it's anger that's under control and it's anger that's dealt with quickly. So quickly that the sun doesn't even have time to set by the time that you've dealt with your anger. Because if we let that anger simmer, we give an opportunity to the devil. That's what Paul says here in verse 27. That if, if we're not controlling that anger, if we let that be uncontrolled and lash out, we're giving an opportunity to the devil. But that's not who we are anymore if we are in Christ. So what, what lie is the desire to be angry feeding you what's that deceptive desire as paul says perhaps you're being fed the lie hey you're you're right and they're wrong so you have every right to be angry you have every right to be angry be be angry come on you're you're right like you they should be you should be angry at them simmer on that Think about that. Dwell on it. Think of how right you are. Think of how angry you should be. Just keep on dwelling on that. Isn't that the lie that our anger feeds to us? That lie of like, oh, I am right. And you, you just start, the more you think about it, the more it just kind of compounds. And like, man, I'm, I'm even righter than I thought I was. And I should be angry. I should be angrier than I am. I'm not angry enough at that person. And it just, that just deceives us into thinking that what we're supposed to be doing is getting more and more angry when in reality what we're supposed to be doing is dealing with it quickly so that the sun doesn't even go down on our anger. That deceptive desire to let anger simmer and, and let it take root in our hearts, that is not who you are anymore if you're in Christ. That belongs to your old manner of life. The new self that has the fruit of the spirit of self-control and kindness, that is what we are to Put on. So put off letting anger simmer and put on dealing with it quickly. How about verse 28? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so, yes, certainly put off stealing. Don't believe the deceptive desire that says, oh, you know, it's not really that big of a deal to fudge a little bit on your tax return. But, you know, I think for, for many of us, we might see this and say, oh, you know what, uh, I, I don't really have a desire to steal. That's not my problem, so let's just move on to the next verse. But I, I think there's some things in here that are, are deeper than just someone who's a thief, who, uh, who, who you know, grabs something uh, in a store, or breaks into someone's house. or I, I, I think there's, there's something here that we need to really pay attention to and put off just as much as anyone else. It, here in verse 28, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. We need to watch out for the lie that says we should make as much money as we can by doing as little work as we have to. And maybe that doesn't lead us to steal, but maybe it leads us to be lazy or to spend more energy scheming about how to make an extra buck rather than using an energy to just work and do honest labor. And so we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds to recognize that the Bible teaches that God actually designed us to do work in the Garden of Eden before the fall. We have Adam and Eve given work to do. That this part of God's design. He didn't design us to uh, be lazy. He designed us to find joy and satisfaction in him as we work 
and do all things for his glory. We find in Scripture the truth that if you don't work, you don't eat, that the Bible treasures, it values work and pay, that you ought to work hard in order to be paid, that you ought not to scheme in order to get money for something that you didn't work for. And so we need to put off that laziness and put on the new self that loves God and wants to do all things and work heartily as unto the Lord. Another lie that we might believe that we can see in this verse is the lie that says, your money is for you. Your money is for you. In reality, what Paul says is that the reason why the thief should no longer steal and do honest work is so that he might have something to share with anyone that's in need. And so I believe the Bible would have us put off a selfish mindset about money and put on the new self, which has a desire to honor God with our money, which has a desire to help others with our money and not to hoard it for ourselves, but to give generously to those in need because that's who we are in Christ. Now let's look at verses 29 and 30. Another example of how we put off and put on. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Two words. Social media. Did you know that we're supposed to be Christians on social media too? I, it's crazy, I know. It's a revolutionary thought. But God would call us to be ambassadors in every arena of life. So let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. What lie is the desire to use corrupting or words that tear down? What, what lie are you tempted to believe that would make you want to put on corrupting talk rather than put on grace-filled talk? Well, it might be the lie that says, I, I have to tear someone else down in order to build myself up. If I'm going to feel good about myself, I'm going to feel better the more I tear someone else down. If that's the lie that we're tempted to believe, we need to combat that. We need to renew our minds with Scripture, renew our minds with the Savior who humbled himself unto death, who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and humbled himself in the most incredible act of selfless love so that he could exalt others rather than trying to tear someone down so that we ought to build ourselves up. Who we are in Christ, in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness, if we're to live in that life, if we're to put on the new self that God's already given us, that involves a selfless love that wants to go low to exalt others rather than put others down in order to exalt myself. Because when we use our words to tear others down rather than to build them up and to give grace to them, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that one day we are going to be in glory with God forever, speaking nothing but grace-filled truth, speaking nothing but uplifting words that honor God, that reflect the true image of God and righteousness and holiness. And can you imagine how much it grieves the Holy Spirit that he's there to seal you for that day, and yet you're living as if that day isn't coming. You're living as if God didn't change you. You're living as if God didn't already give you a new heart that wants to speak grace and life and truth. The Spirit of God gives us the power to be able to speak these words. And so, how foolish are we to, to not tap into that power, to not tap into the one who can use our words to actually dispense grace to one another. And then lastly, in verses 31 and 32, 
There's a, a string of examples here. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Put all that off. That, that's not you anymore. That belongs to your former manner of life. That's not who you are in Christ. Along with all malice, and verse 32, put on this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The more that our minds are renewed, the more that we're speaking the truth and love to one another and we're speaking grace to one another, the, the more that we see how God changed us, uh, the old self and the new self, the, the more that there's just going to be these examples like this, this, these strings of examples where we start to just recognize and have, a, have almost a, an impulse or uh, just a, an instinct a new heart instinct in Christ of saying, you know what, these things, that's not who I am anymore. That, that slander, that, that bitterness, that desire to hold on to that grudge, that's not who I am anymore. That's not who Jesus made me. Jesus has given me a, a forgiving heart, a tender heart, a heart to be kind to one another. The more that we have our minds renewed, the more it'll come into clarity how we ought to put off and put on. And, and you know, what I love about this instruction to forgive one another right here in verse 32. It's a reminder that we're going to mess this up. God has made us new in Christ. We have all the resources we need for life and godliness, but we're going to mess this up. We're going to need to forgive one another. We're going to need to love one another. All of our efforts here to put off the old, to put on the new, need to be cloaked in grace. As we all seek to, to be who we are in Christ together, uh, it needs to be in an atmosphere of grace where we're encouraging one another, speaking the truth in love, to, to put off the old and put on the new, but, and also just living with one another in an understanding way, recognizing that we're, we we're going to need to forgive one another. We're not going to get this right all the time. We're going to continue to wrestle between the already and the not yet. We need grace from one another. But we don't just need grace from one another. We also need grace from God. And so quickly as we close, yes, we need to stop living unchanged. Yes, we need to live changed. But I think most importantly, we need to look to the one who changed us. For every look at ourselves, we need to take ten looks to the God who saved us. Look, look at the end of verse 32. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We need to look to the God who forgave us. One of the most important things we can do to love one another is to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remind ourselves of how much God has forgiven us. And then in, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, we need to look to the Father who adopted us. Back in chapter 1, Paul talked about how we were predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. This is who he has made us. He has made us in Christ, his adopted children. And so as beloved children, may we be imitators of God. And one of the one of the most exciting milestones uh, that Selah reached, I remember early on, was when she was starting to be able to imitate me. And so, you know, I'd make a funny sound or make a funny face, and she would do it back in kind of her way. And it was like, oh, this is so cool. She's, she's actually able to imitate me. And now, of course, you know, she's learning little individual words and stuff. It's all just from imitation. We say something, and she says it back. We say mama, she says mama. We say cheese, she says cheese. We say all these different things, and she says it back to us. That's how we're teaching her. That's how, we're, how she's learning. Um, sometimes I'll, <laughs> I'll have my obnoxiously loud laugh, and then she'll go, ha, ha, and try to imitate me and mimic me, and like, okay, let's, let's, not, let's not do that. But you know, in her imitation of us, there isn't a bit of her trying to earn our love. There's just joy. There isn't any drudgery or burden in her imitating us. She, she loves us. And she, in her 11-month-old way, knows that we love her. And she just wants to be like us. It's a joy for her. She loves it. 
And so as, as we see all of these instructions, as we see this new self that God has given us, that we're created after the likeness of God, that would we, as beloved children, imitate our Father? I, I pray that no, nothing of what we've said it feels like a burden to you, as if you would ever need to earn God's love. No, your, your Father loves you dearly. I pray that this would not be a burden for you, as if it was a drudgery to, to put off the old and put on the old. No, I, may we have the hearts of loving children that just want to be like Daddy and find joy and just looking exactly like the one that we look up to with all of the joy in our hearts. And then lastly, look to the Savior who loved us. In verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May our minds continually be renewed so that we could, as Paul said in chapter 3, know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, the height, and the depth, the length, and the breadth of Christ's amazing love. We're going to end our service today by gathering around the Lord's table, by taking the Lord's Supper. God gave us, through Jesus, this meal so that we would remember Christ's love for us. Remember how he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so as we desire to look to the one who changed us, as we desire to be changed by his love, changed by his grace, we need to remember how he saved us. Remember what he did to change us. Remember who we are in Christ. And so uh, I'm going to pray and then Colton is actually going to come and lead us through the taking of the Lord's Supper, and, uh, and we will enjoy uh, gathering together and remembering Christ's love for us. So let me pray for us, and then we'll gather together around the table. Father, as we turn now to the Lord's table, Lord, I ask that you would prepare our hearts even now pray that in light of all that we've seen, Lord, that we would most of all be in awe at the fact that you would change us at all, knowing who we were, what we were, what our condition was, how much we had run from you. Lord, that you would change us at all should lead us to awe. So Lord, would we have that awe now as we gather around your table? We have that awe as we hear from your word, as we consider this symbol. Lord, we'll be grateful that you have given us a new heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.